Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 246. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Nice show today. Well, actually, when I normally say like a fantastic show, if I come out and say a nice show, then it's like, oh, just a nice show. But it's a fantastic show. Trust us. Tell you what's coming in today's show. It's the beginning of the month. So we have Art and Skeets telling all about Ben Wooten covering the sofa. And just get a look at Ben's work. Ben is a favourite of mine on Starship Sofa for the Art. He's just Brings out some crack and stuff. And Ben's going to be involved with the kind of the hub. You know, I was talking about the District of Wonders website, which is going to be the hub for all the kind of shows now. Ben's doing the artwork for that. So look out for that when it comes. Then we have a little introduction by John Joseph Adams. John has a new anthology out now, Other Worlds Than These. How exciting is that, man? You know what I mean? John's given a little introduction to that. Then the main fiction is The Crystal Holloway and The Forgotten Passage by Seanan Maguire. Then we have a little promo for a play taken off in London. Do listen out for that. And right at the end, we have Diane Severson's Poetry Planet. Poetry Planet? <laughs> hey, i man. That is today's show. But before that, let me just take you back a little while. So as I've just introduced there, this is show 246, but it's not really. It's really number 348. Yeah, that's quite a few, lads. I'll give you a little history. A lot, a lot of you will know this, but Starship Sova started out in kind of, I think it was on like the June 2006, and it started off as two people talking about science fiction authors who they kind of loved and who were kind of introduced by one another. And that was, you know, myself and Kieran O'Carroll. Now, a lot, like I say, a lot of you know all this anyways, but there is a point of this anyway, so let us get to that. So it started off, and we did... Round about, myself and Kieran did about 70, 69 shows. I think actually the last one was show 69 when we did sex. <laughs> Had to be show 69 when we did sex in sci-fi. And basically, we just talked about, you know, the, the famous kind of writers who we like. You know, the first one we kicked off one was with Alfred Bester. And then, you know, we have kind of done done the lot. I mean, there was a couple that we kind of never got round to doing just because of the, the biggins, but we did like a three-part on Philip K. Dick. We did Heinlein, we, you know, God, I can name them all. There's 102 of them. And actually, Amy H. Sturgis did number 102 as well, which was about poor. Then, like I say, 
round about that time, well, it was actually between show 69, I think, and show 70, that's when myself and Kieran split up and Starship Sova kind of went on a, a, a different direction. And actually, that's when I had an accident at work. I knocked myself out at work and I was in hospital for, I don't know, five days or something like that. And I was off on the sick for three months. And I totally kind of changed Starship Sova to what it is today. You know, then I started the kind like I started the number in system again. So number one was the the Michael Moorcock show, if you remember that, all the way back, London born, and that's the ones that are in the feed there now. Now all them shows beforehand, I just kind of took them off and deleted them, not deleted them from, deleted them, but took them away. Well, now they are back. You can go and get them on the front of the website. We've got a new page. Josh has designed a new lip page. And the funny thing is, you know, I'm trying to help Josh out. And I as well set it all up. Well, it just looked like a naughty mess when I did it. And Josh <laughs> took over. So <laughs> smartened it all up. But the nice thing on the cool thing about it is there, if you go onto the kind of the site there, there's a little advert now I've got on the front of the website. And it's in the shop, so you can link from that as well. But if you go in, you'll actually see, you know, right, there's a couple of pictures. There's a couple of, there's a picture at the beginning where it's Kieran and Moorcock and, and me when we kind of flew to Paris with Kenny Park to actually interview, do like a TV interview with Moorcock. There's a nice picture there of him kind of standing, you know, we're standing below the Eiffel Tower. But if you go right past, and it gets you a chance to have a look at all the kind of people we have done, you know, like kind of Charlie Stross. There's just Neil Gaiman, there's loads of them. If you go right to the bottom, there's about 10 photographs of the early days of Starship Sova, you know, like recorded in the kitchen and, you know, sleeping on settees and stuff like that. So that's nice, just a kind of little memory. And it was lovely for me as well, just to kind of, you know, just even think about those shows again. And, you know, like say 2006, and I always kind of say, you know, Escape Pod was like such an instrumental being for for Starship Silver when it kind of kicked off, you know what an inspiration that was, and I don't think you know Skateboard had probably only put out fifty shows, if that, when we kicked off. Do you know what I mean? So it was all kind of new territory then. You know, like say, look what's happened now. You know, Starship Silver, and even last week, which was just an amazing kind of download figures, we got you know silly figures. We got over twenty thousand downloads for last week's show. You know, so from and I honestly can remember, you know, the first time we put out the kind of the Alfred Brester one, I remember thinking we hit 25 downloads. Do you know what I mean? And that one show, like I see everybody kind of, knew, like, you know, in your kind of history of science fiction, Alfred Brester is one of the gods. Do you know what I mean? And that show now, you know what I mean? Or that show then, you know, eventually, you know, it would get a, a lot more downloads when they were kind of, when they were in the feed, you know, the popular guy, Bester. So what I'm saying is, please pop over there, you know, and this is a kind of nice way to kind of support Starship Sova. You get to kind of get these shows. Out of the 202, there is one missing. There's part one of a Neil Gaiman, and I cannot find that anywhere. You know, I've always had, and I've always transferred over from computer to computer and been in cloud this and cloud that. But there's been, I don't know, since we actually put it up, you know, one of the Neil Gaiman ones, the part one of Neil Gaiman one, that's not there for some reason. But what you do get as well is the the Red Dwarf scenario where, you know, this goes down in kind of so far classic history where Kieran's talking about Red Dwarf and I'm thinking he's talking about his own uncle. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> 
people had heard that, you know what I mean, Nora kind of fiddling about and stuff like that, know where I'm going. So that would be lovely, you know, if you kind of pop over there at the front of the website, click on that ad- advert above Ben Wooten's art and, you know, delve back into the history. And I'm quite actually proud of, I'm very proud of them shows, do you know what I mean? Because like you say, we kind of, you know, not saying did it first, but we were there kind of putting out that kind of quality material. And if you have a look at one of the pictures, it's like show notes. The amount of show notes we had for writers was just unreal. Do you know what I mean? It was just like kind of reams. I mean, this was kind of Kieran. This certainly wasn't me. You know, it was like reams and reams of paper just all on, like, you know. See, like, one of them was religion and science fiction. And that's just, you know, and that's actually where I discovered, you know, from that show, you know, I delved into Canical for Leibowitz. And what a story that is. Do you know what I mean? And there's even, you know, there's even a picture of me and Kieran in bed together. Do you know what I mean? In a Paris hotel. Yeah. Don't ask. Don't ask. Publicity shot. That's all I can say. So please, you know, that would be lovely. Now, there is one more other thing before we kind of jump into the show. The new, on kind of, this is all to do with kind of Apple um, scenarios. So if you're not in that kind of Apple, just try and, you know, squiggle forward a little bit. But... They released, and this is actually quite important, they released a new app called Podcasts. Now, this is actually, and a lot of people now, you know, kind of just take their apps and or, or take the show from other means than iTunes. But what this means is now that I, you know, iTunes is kind of separated a little bit from podcasts. Apple's now decided to give podcasts their own app, which is an almighty thing. Do you know what I mean? No more now are you kind of tied to iTunes and everything like that. If you're kind of going that, you know, if you're on the Apple kind of, you know, if you're in the Apple kind of <laughs> theory. But it means so much. Do you know what I mean? You, and like you say, if over all devices, you know, you can get Starship Sofa now. And actually, we're in the kind of hot whatever of the literature. You know what I mean? So that's amazing as well. And I'm sure that's helped with kind of download figures. You know, like just... It's the first time ever in this kind of six years that Starship's going as they cracked like 20,000 in the first week of downloads. You know what I mean? Amazing. And, you know, yes, we got a kind of a post on Boeing, which is just awesome when Corey does that. But I've had them before, you know, the, 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 the one which was Kate Wilhelms. That got a, 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 a kind of mention on Boeing as well, but it didn't get, you know, like 20,000. But then all of a sudden... Apple's released this new kind of app and it's I think it's instrumental in kind of getting shows out there now so please even if you've got you know even if you're subscribed you and it's free do you know what I mean if you've got an iPhone or anything like that now subscribe via that because that's going to help you know and that's all I'm kind of after now is just getting the kind of name about the starships over that will help so much and writing and we used to do this in the kind of the early days as well, but it still means, you know, and I've never asked this, I think, but except, you know, like the bloody, the first year when we did it, writing a review of it in iTunes, do you know what I mean? That would be, that all pushes it up, you know, gives you the kind of the apple juice and gets you into that, the kind of hot 100s and stuff like that. So people can actually see, you know, the, the image of Starship Sofa on there. That would be, honestly, that would mean amazing to us, you know, to... If you could do that, that would be fantastic. Get that app. Like I say, it's free. And subscribe to Starship Sofa that way. Yes, you're probably getting it somewhere else. Yes, you might be using another app. 
But if you use that one, it's going to help this show so much. I have waffled enough. My apologies. Just had to get that off my chest. Ben Wooten's art. Again, take a look at it. It is stunning. Do you know what I mean? And wait till you see what's coming with Ben for the new District of Wonders site. Skeet. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host, Keith Sainsky. This, the month of July 2012, we have the fantastic, the amazing, one of our frequent flyers here on the sofa, Mr. Ben Wooten. He has graciously given us this month's cover entitled Troops Flat, a very cool piece of art depicting a futuristic military deployment. It shows a stealthy hovering dropship only 70 feet off the ground as it holds steady troops repel from ropes to the unknown danger waiting for them in the nearby jungle. A self-employed freelance illustrator and designer, Ben studied at Christ Church College of Education and Otago University. His strong knowledge of animal anatomy and physiology allows him to be very creative with creature concepts. Also, storytelling comes easy as his ability to understand environment and set design come into play. Ben has previous worked as senior designer at the Weta Workshop and has also been featured with companies such as Wizard of the Coast, Blizzard and Entertainment, Sony Online Interactive, Weta Limited, and Battlefront Miniatures. He's done illustrations for The Lord of the Rings, King Kong, the Narnia films as designer, and much, much more. As I said, Ben is no stranger to the Starship Soap either. He's been featured before on episodes number 146, 160, and one of my favorites, episode 191, where he did the amazing cover for the Michael Moorcock novella, Black Petals. He's currently working on yet another project for Tony at the uh, new hub page for all four shows, The Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Hulk. If you'd like to see more of Ben's work, please visit his page at benwooten.daportfolio.com forward slash. And that's Ben Wooten spelled B-E-N-W-O-O-T-T-E-N. We're lucky to have such a talented artist as Ben Wooten here on the sofa and look forward to more from this amazing designer. This is Skeet Sciensky signing off. Back to you, Mr. T. There you go, some funky music there, Skeet. Where's that come from? <laughs> Just a little bit smooching there. But like what, like I said, Skeet was saying there about Ben with our District of Wonders. You know, that District of Wonders is going to be the hub site. So, you, you know, you can kind of go from there, and then from there you can go down Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, or Protecting Project Pulp. We are now kind of in the, the home front for those last two shows. They are going to go this this month they will be released. I'll give you more details when we kind of know exactly what it is coming. They are coming very, very soon, so do look out for that. Big things are happening, not just in Starship so far. We have John Joseph Adams has got a new anthology out, and I love it. Like I see, I've mentioned this time and time again. When, you know, John brings out something, he brings it out. It's the kind of, the theme, you know what I mean? And it's like other worlds than these. What an idea. Do you know what I mean? I know, and I'm so looking forward. John's got one coming out called Robot Uprising. 
I think it is, which is just going to be tremendous. But other worlds than these, you know what I mean? That's just purely what I want. Do you know what I mean? Just delivered there in, in short stories as well. So I've got a little kind of little introduction by John Joseph Adams. John. What if you could not only travel to any location in the world, but to any possible world? That is the central conceit of my new anthology, Other Worlds Than These. Or, to be more precise, it aims to collect the best stories that fall into one of two categories, parallel world stories or portal fantasies. A portal fantasy is a story in which a person from one world, usually the real world, is transported to some other world via some magical or unexplained means, usually one full of impossibilities and generally much stranger than the one they come from. A parallel world story is one in which a person from one world, usually the real world, is transported to some other world via scientific or technological means, usually a parallel universe or alternate reality, either just slightly different than the one they left, or, or else vastly different, with different physical laws, but strictly scientifically plausible. As you can see from the parallels in those two descriptions, the portal fantasy and the parallel world story are essentially two sides of the same coin. Heads, you get fantasy. Tails, you get science fiction. But in each, the character's journey is essentially the same, to explore and wonder at these strange other worlds, or to do their damnness to get back home. So if you're looking to take a trip through the looking glass, or into the universe next door, please visit johnjosephadams.com for more information about the anthology. One of the stories from that other worlds than these is, and I put, I, see, I put a link onto John's book as well, is the one we're going to play now by Sean Ann Maguire. But listen, kind of some of the lineup you've got in there George R. R. Martin, Catherine Valentier, Robert Silverberg, where's he come from? Robert Silverberg, Stephen Baxter, Paul McCauley, Michael Swanick, Gregory Benford, Pat Canigan, Joyce Carol Oates, Ian MacDonald, Alistair Reynolds, Ursula Kiela Gwynn, Stephen King. Do you know what I mean? This story is narrated by Mrs. John Joseph Adams, Christy Yans. And it's been lovely, you know what I mean? I've been harping on to Christy all the time to get back on the mic and, and give her a narration as well. And she's pulled this one out. Christy, that, honestly, thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Crystal Holloway and the Forgotten Passage by Sean and McGuire. That's the last of them, Crystal said. We should be safe for now. The dire bat's headless body lay on the floor of the cave like an accusation, blackish blood still seeping from its neck. Crystal looked at it and shuddered, disgusted, before giving it a sharp kick. It rolled over the edge of the chasm and fell into darkness, vanishing without a trace. They'd have to find the head eventually, but that could wait. Are you sure? Chester asked. Her companion peered anxiously down into the dark, his nose twitching. Crystal knew that his ears, which would have been better suited to a jackrabbit than a boy, as she'd teased him so many times over the years, would have been doing the same if they hadn't been tucked up under his hat. He'd done that to protect them from the shrieking of the dire bats. She briefly considered snatching the hat from his head, but set the thought aside. Nervous as he still was, he wouldn't take the prank as innocently as it was meant. I'm sure... She slid her dagger back into its sheath before wiping the sweat-matted hair away from her forehead. Listen, you can hear the wind again. Not just the wind. There was also the gentle tapping of inhuman legs making contact with stone. The pair turned to see a great black spider, easily the size of a small car, come walking down the cavern wall. It reached the floor and continued walking toward them on its bristle-haired legs, 
stopping just a few short feet away. With an air of deep solemnity, the spider bowed. "'The land of other ways is in your debt once again, young Crystal,' said the spider, in a deep voice that was softer than its appearance suggested. "'We thank you.' "'Don't thank me, Nauman. It was my pleasure. It's always my pleasure.' Crystal leaned forward to rest a hand on the spider's back, digging her fingers into the coarse black hair that grew there. This is my home as much as it's yours. Even so, your service here is all the more heroic because it is freely offered. You could return to your world of origin at any time, leaving us to our fate, and yet you choose time and again to stay and fight for our survival. The spider straightened until the largest of its eyes were on a level with Crystal's own. You are not the first to come from your world to other ways, but you are far and away the bravest. Yeah, brave me, said Crystal softly and pulled her hand away. Talk of others coming to other ways before her always made her uncomfortable, although she could never put her finger on exactly why that was. Maybe it was the fact that her friends in other ways, who were otherwise forthright in all ways, would never describe the others as anything more than the ones who came before you. They had no names, they had no faces, they had no stories to explain what could possibly have caused them to abandon a world as wonderful and magical as other ways. They were just gone. Oh, bush and bother, Crystal, look! Chester, who could always be counted on to panic over nothing, and to show surprising bravery in the face of actual danger, pointed to the sky. Not already, not so soon. A sick knot of dread formed in her stomach as she followed the direction of his finger. There was nothing there but darkness. She relaxed a little, saying, I don't understand. What are we looking at? The passage star is shining again. Chester let his hand fall, looking at her sorrowfully. He was always the first to see the passage star's light, even as Crystal herself was always the last. You can go home now. The dread returned, clenched tighter than ever. Oh, "'You can go if you wish,' said Nauman, almost as if he could see what she was feeling. "'The choice to stay or go is always yours. "'You know you would be welcome if you chose to remain.' "'The passage star will only burn for three hours,' said Crystal slowly, "'arguing aside she wasn't sure that she believed in. "'After that—' "'After that it will go out, but it will light again once a fortnight "'until a year has gone without someone passing from our world to yours.' you would still have the opportunity to change your mind. Crystal took a shaky breath, forcing her first answer aside. Nauman always asked if she would stay, and every time it got a little bit harder to tell him no. How was she supposed to focus on school and chores and picking the right colleges to apply to when she was the champion of other ways, the hero of the endless fields, and the savior of the caverns of time? The world she'd been born in seemed more like a dream every time she came to the other ways, and this world... This strange, beautiful, terrible world with its talking spiders and its deadly scheming roses seemed more like the reality. Nauman and Chester looked at her hopefully. They'd been her best friends and sworn companions since she was just a little girl. Chester was barely more than a bunny when they first met. Now she was almost a woman, and Chester was... Chester. Nauman had been slightly smaller in those days, but no less ancient and no less wise. Just the thought of leaving them made her heart break a little... Hearts can heal, she thought, remembering something Nauman once told her after they saved the princess of thorns from her mother, the wicked Rose Queen. Crystal took another, steadier breath, and gave the answer she'd been giving since her twelfth birthday, when the great spider first asked if she would stay. Not yet. My parents would miss me too much. 
let me turn 18. That's when they expect to lose me to college anyway. They can lose me to other ways instead. Nauman shifted his pedipalps in the gesture she had come to recognize as his equivalent of a nod. If that is your wish, Crystal Holloway, it will be honored. We will count the hours until you return to us. Don't stay gone too long, okay, Crystal? asked Chester. I never do, do I? Crystal leaned over and hugged him hard. He was her best friend and her first love. He'd been her first kiss the year she turned fourteen and saved the meadows of mourning from the machinations of the timeless child. I miss you too much when I'm gone. Please, then, take this to remember us by. Nauman reached out one long black leg. A dream catcher dangled from his foot, the strands woven from silk so fine that it seemed almost like light held captive in a circle of willow wood and twine. Hang it above your bed, and only good dreams will come to visit you. Crystal knew the dream catcher would do nothing against her nightmares. Nauman had been giving her the same token since the first time he asked her to stay, and they hadn't stopped a single bad dream. Still, making the dream catchers seem to soothe him in some way she couldn't quite understand, and so she reached out and took it, feeling the weight of it settle in her palm, simultaneously feather-light and heavy as a stone. Nauman returned his foot to the cavern floor. "'Thank you, my friend,' she said as she tucked the dream catcher into her pocket. "'I'll hang it in a place of honor. "'See that you do.' Nauman waved his pedipalps again, this time in the motion that denoted concern. I wish you would reconsider, Crystal. I wish that you would stay. Crystal paused, frowning. Nauman always asked her not to go. He'd never tried to change her mind before. Nauman, what's wrong? It's just that you are growing up, Crystal, and I worry for your safety. The great spider stilled, looking at her gravely. The choice, as always, is yours. Oh, my friend... Crystal moved almost without thinking, stepping forward and wrapping her arms around the body of the spider, just behind the smallest of his eyes. Nauman leaned into her embrace, but only enough to show that he welcomed it, not enough for his greater size to knock her off her feet, as had happened so often in her younger days. "'Don't worry about me. I'll always make it back to you. Always.' Nauman stroked her back with the tip of one foreleg, faceted eyes focused on the endless black in front of him, and said nothing." There was nothing left that he could say. Crystal approached the welcome stone slowly, alone, as she always did. The dread was still there in the pit of her stomach, tangled with warring desires. She wanted to go home, to sleep in her own bed and hug her parents in the morning. She wanted to stay, always, to sleep in the cobweb-decked bedroom Nauman had spun for her and the brambles that ringed the endless fields. She wanted to graduate from high school. She wanted to kiss Chester again and again, forever. Most of all, she wanted to be there when the next child stumbled into the light of the passage star. She never wanted to be one of the children Nauman refused to name. She wanted to stay. But she couldn't. The passage back to her own world only took a few seconds. She stepped into the light of the passage star, which always shone in a perfect circle, right at the center of the welcome stone, blinked, and was back in the world in which she'd been born standing in the tiny room housing the magic telescope that let her travel into other ways. She closed the telescope lens quickly, before something unpleasant could find a way to follow her, and turned to head down the narrow stone passageway that connected to the secret door at the back of her closet. She'd found the secret door in the room beyond by accident when she was six, playing at Seeking Narnia. Now she couldn't imagine a world where she didn't have the route to other ways etched deep into her heart, like an ache that never quite went away. 
The passage was tighter than it used to be. She had to stoop a little to keep her head from knocking against the ceiling, and there were places where she had to turn and scoot along sideways in order to avoid getting stuck. One more growth spurt and she'd wind up staying in other ways because she couldn't make it back to her bedroom, or she'd wind up trapped in the world where she was born, without ever once choosing to stay. She couldn't keep going back and forth forever. She knew that. She'd known for a long time. Somehow, the feel of the walls pressing against her back and chest as she inched through the tighter spaces just made that fact more real. Soon, she would have to decide. The passage widened as it came to an end, letting her into an antechamber almost as large as the telescope room. She walked the last few steps to the door with her head high and placed her hand upon the doorknob. "'My name is Crystal Halloway,' she said, "'and I am coming back from the most incredible adventure.' The doorknob turned under her hand of its own accord, and the door of her closet swung open. Crystal pushed her way through the hanging coats, which were more window-dressing than anything else. She would never dream of using her closet to store clothing when she might need to rush to other ways at a moment's notice, and she was back in the familiar bedroom that had been hers practically since she was born. Moving more on autopilot than anything else, she walked to the bed, where she removed her dagger and shoved it under her pillow. It was unlikely to be seen by prying parental eyes while it was there, and she slept better, knowing it was close at hand. She yawned vastly, suddenly aware of how tired she was, and how hungry she was, and how much her battle with the dire bats had left her in need of a shower. The dreamcatcher stayed in the pocket of her jeans as she shucked off her clothes and put on her nightshirt, which was so old and faded that she was probably the only one in the world who still saw Mickey Mouse in the shapeless blurs on the front. The dreamcatcher stayed in the pocket of her jeans as she kicked them to one side and went to take her shower, shampooing her hair three times to get the smell of dire bat blood out. The dreamcatcher stayed in the pocket of her jeans as she went to the kitchen for a midnight snack, as she checked the locks, as she came back into the room and climbed into her bed. The stuffed tarantula she slept with every night, bought for her when she was eight, two years after she first entered other ways, was waiting for her on her nightstand. She picked it up and hugged it tightly. "'Good night, little Nauman,' she said, with the gravity of a teenage girl who knows she's doing something silly, but does it anyway, because it's what she's always done. Spin me good dreams tonight, okay?' On some other night, maybe that silly ritual phrase would have reminded her of the dreamcatcher. Maybe she would have pulled it out of her pocket, dusted the lint from its strands, and hung it above her bed where it belonged. It had happened before— but she was tired and sore from fighting the dire bats and sick at heart from the knowledge that soon she would have to choose one world over the other, and all she wanted was to stop thinking for a little while. The dreamcatcher stayed in the pocket of her jeans as she reached over to her bedside table and turned off the light. Crystal Halloway, savior of the other ways, closed her eyes and slept. There was no one single thing that woke her, one moment Crystal was asleep, and the next she was awake, staring into the darkness and trying to figure out why every nerve was screaming. Something was wrong. As always, when something she couldn't name was wrong, Crystal's thoughts leapt to other ways. The passage star was shining. It had to be shining. And something was stopping her from seeing its light properly. But the star never rose this soon after a visit. Filled with an unnamed dread, Crystal tried to jump out of the bed and run for the closet. The sheets that had been snarled so carelessly around her while she slept drew instantly tight, becoming a net as effective as one of Nauman's webs. Crystal's dread suddenly solidified into concrete fear. 
She struggled harder, and the sheets drew ever tighter, tying her down. Opening her mouth, she prepared to scream and stopped herself before the sound could escape. Sheets didn't move on their own, not in this world. Whatever was happening, it was tied to the other ways. If she screamed, her parents would come, and whatever was attacking her would take them, too. She was trapped, alone in the dark, and there was no one who could save her. Crystal's mind raced, trying to figure out which of her many enemies from other ways could be behind this invasion. The Rose Queen? The Old Man of the Frozen North? Even the Timeless Child? All of them were somewhere in other ways, and all of them hated her. But none of them had ever demonstrated that they had the ability to travel through the light of the Passage Star before. Oh, good. You're awake. It's easier when they're awake. The voice was sweet, female, and unfamiliar. Crystal turned toward it, squinting to make out anything through the gloom. Don't try to move. You'll only hurt yourself. The idea that she could hurt herself caused Crystal to strain even harder against the sheets. Hurting herself implied movement, and movement could imply breaking loose. The woman sighed. You're going to be a troublesome one, aren't you? Ah, well, it can't be helped. You never should have been left so long. Whatever they were using to hide you worked very, very well. I knew there was one of you little runaways still in this town, but I couldn't seem to find you before tonight. The sweet-voiced woman flew languidly out of the shadows and hovered above Crystal, smiling serenely down at her. Whatever you did wrong, my dear, thank you. I appreciate it. The dream catcher thought Crystal wildly, thinking of it for the first time since returning to her room. She took a short, sharp breath and stopped struggling. All her guesses as to her attacker's identity had been wrong. This wasn't one of the enemies she knew. This was a stranger. The woman in the air above her was round-faced and ruddy-cheeked, with soft brown curls and twinkling blue eyes. She looked like she would have been perfectly at home baking cookies or reading stories in a preschool, except for her rapidly fluttering mayfly wings. Those, and the large knife in her hand, established her as clearly supernatural and just as clearly hostile. "'Who are you?' Crystal hissed, barely raising her voice above a whisper. "'Oh, there's no need to whisper. You can scream yourself hoarse and no one will hear you, but I recommend against it. Laryngitis is no fun for anyone.' The woman continued to smile. "'Still, if it will make you feel better, go right ahead.' "'Get out of my room,' snarled Crystal. The sheets were still tangled tight around her, but that gave her an idea. Nauman's webs worked by turning each captive's strength against them, letting the strong batter themselves into weakness. The sheets had tightened every time she struggled. Glaring at the woman, she forced herself to go limp. "'Now, now, dear, has no one taught you how to greet a guest? Your manners are sorely lacking.' The sheets were no looser than they had been, but they were getting no tighter. "'I don't think manners apply to the uninvited.' "'Manners apply to the uninvited most of all.' The woman dipped lower in the air, reaching down to tap the fingers of her right hand against Crystal's cheek. "'Remember that, if you can.' Crystal took a breath, and then she moved, calling on everything she'd learned from her games of catch-and-keep with Chester, who was faster than anyone else she'd ever known. The sheets reacted to the motion, but they were too slow, if only by a fraction of a second, missing her wrists as she yanked them free.' Then her dagger was in her hand, and she was slashing wildly at the sheets still holding her down, preparing to lunge for the woman who had dared to invade her home, who had dared. The binding spell crashed down on her with enough force to slam her against the mattress, knocking the air out of her lungs. 
Her dagger fell to the floor, slipping out of her nerveless fingers as she stared, unmoving, into the dark above her bed. "'Oh, you naughty thing! I see why they worked so hard to hide you. You were quite the catch for them, weren't you? I'm sorry to have to bind you, but you left me no choice. Try to breathe. This will all be over soon, and this silliness will fade away.' The woman fluttered out of Crystal's view. The mattress creaked as a weight settled on it. Then a gentle hand grasped Crystal's chin, turning her head until she was facing the little woman who sat beside her. Crystal glared with all the force that she could find. The woman smiled. "'You're sixteen, aren't you? Don't try to answer. I already know. Don't you think it's past time you stopped running off to some childish fantasy land, leaving this world, this good world that you were born a part of, wanting? It's time to grow up, my dear.' She tapped Crystal's cheek again. This time she bore down enough that the sharp tips of her nails bit into Crystal's skin. I'm here to help you. I'm the truth fairy, you see. And that means I can do what you haven't been able to do on your own. Crystal tried to struggle. Crystal failed. Haven't you ever noticed how fairies only come when there are things to be taken away? Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the birthday pig, they come to leave things behind them. "'Presents and chocolates and things like that. "'But the tooth fairy comes when you lose a tooth, "'and she takes that tooth away, and you never see it again. "'What she leaves is a hole, something that your new tooth can fill. "'Do you understand yet, my dear?' "'Crystal's eyes screamed hate at her, hate and terror, "'because something of what the truth fairy was saying "'made perfect, terrible sense. "'All the children she'd known in elementary school.' the ones who had traveled to worlds of their own, worlds like her own other ways, but different. They'd all forgotten their adventures, hadn't they? She wondered why, with increasing confusion, as friend after friend suddenly swore their quests and their trials had been nothing but fantasies. She'd been to some of their worlds, traveling through mechanisms as strange and wondrous as her own passage star. And then, one day, those children just forgot. And there had been other children in other ways before her. You can't be part of two worlds forever. The heart doesn't work like that. There isn't room, any more than there's room in a mouth for two sets of teeth. Baby teeth fall out. Childhoods end. That's how adult teeth and adult lives find the space to grow. The truth fairy leaned close, voice almost a whisper as she said, Haven't you ever noticed how so many people seem to walk around empty inside, like there's a hole cut out of the middle of them? A space where something used to be and isn't anymore? Someone has to dig the holes, Crystal. When your baby teeth don't fall out, someone has to pull them. Hearts can heal. That's what Nauman had told her. But there'd been more to it, hadn't there? Hearts can heal as long as they remember the way home. Hearts could forget the way home. The truth fairy rose on buzzing wings. Crystal's eyes widened, the reality of the moment sinking into her bones. There was no rescue. There was no salvation. Her name was going to be added to the quiet ranks of the forgotten, and never spoken again. Not now, not tomorrow, not the next child to stumble through the light of the passage star. She was never going home again. The knife went up. The knife came down. And somewhere, deep inside her, in the place that the truth fairy's knife sought with such unerring skill, Crystal Halloway screamed. Morning dawned, as mornings always do. Paul and Marianne Halloway were in the kitchen when their daughter came down the stairs, still yawning and wiping the sleep from her eyes. 
Morning, Mom and Dad, she said, voice muffled by the hand she pressed against her mouth. Breakfast? Scrambled eggs and toast, said Marianne. How did you sleep? Really well. Crystal smiled a little blearily as she dropped herself into a seat at the kitchen table. I had the weirdest dreams. Her father looked up from his laptop, leaving his half-composed email unsent. What about? You know, I don't remember now. Crystal's smile became a puzzled frown. Something about a rabbit, I think. I don't know. For a moment, her frown deepened, taking on an almost panicked edge. It seemed so important. Don't worry yourself, dear. Marianne put a plate of eggs and toast down in front of her daughter. Eat up. You don't want to be late for school. Yeah. The frown faded, replaced by calm. We're talking about college applications today. I should probably be on time for that. Crystal ate quickly and mechanically, and after she left, her parents marveled at how focused and collected she'd seemed, like she was finally ready to face the challenges of growing up. Neither of them saw the empty space behind her eyes, in the place where a lifetime of adventures used to be. Neither of them saw the hole cut through her heart, waiting to be filled by a world that would never satisfy her, although she would never, until she died, be able to articulate why. Neither of them really saw her at all, and it wouldn't have mattered if they had. Done was done, and a heart, once truly broken, could never remember the way home. Crystal's father had grown up in that same house, had known adventures and excitement in a world whose name he no longer knew. He would love his daughter all the more for having lost the same things he had lost. And her mother, she didn't remember the talking horses or the magical wars or the young prince with webs between his fingers, not consciously, even if sometimes in the night she cried. Both of them knew that empty space more intimately than they could understand. And none of them, not Crystal, not her parents, could hear the distant, thready sound of a giant spider, the guardian of the passage to the beyond, the one who had guided and guarded a hundred generations of human children, nurtured them, loved them, and lost them all, weeping. There you go, thank you very much. Don't forget, copyright is Shona Maguire's and Christy, a big thank you. Again, link on the site to John's book. Do pop over there and treat yourself to that. Next up, we have a little promo for a play, no less. Do you like science fiction? Do you like theatre? Then Blast Off is a show for you. A night of theatre so sci-fi-tastic it takes kitchen sink drama and adds in a replicator. A night where breaking the fourth wall could mean the collapse of the multiverse. And a night where you'll see short plays by award-winning writers Gabriel Wizard-Smith, Joshua Conkle, and star of Channel 4's stand-up of the week, Sarah Pascal. Last off, only going where no show has gone before. To the Soho Theatre in London, July 10th, 7pm. Engage! If you're in the kind of London area, you know, do try and go and see Blast Off. That would be fantastic. So to wrap things up, we have Diane Severson and her Portry Planet, number six, Diane. Geese fly noisily across the pale morning sky. 
the moon silently. Hello, fellow Sophonauts. Welcome to Poetry Planet. Thank you for joining me. I'm Diane Severson, your guide. Today we are on a mission to the moon. Naturally, the moon, our moon, Earth's moon, is a popular destination in science fiction. It has fascinated us humans for millennia and inspired many a writer. Science fiction poets are not immune to its seductiveness, and today I present nine wonderful poems about the moon. In case you've been wondering, the introductory music is my friend and colleague Meinhard Gerlach and is an excerpt from our CD entitled Silence, on which I also sing. During it, you heard a haiku by Jeffrey Landis. It's not technically science fiction poetry, but I loved its evocation of the moon when I read it in Starline. This is what Jeffrey has to say about his haiku. When I write haiku, I try to keep to the Japanese form, which is to say it should be an observation of a single moment, free of metaphor, and with a word that anchors the poem in a specific season, or kigo in Japanese. So this one is a single moment in time, mine noticing the contrast between a flock of geese, honking as they migrate, and the silence of the moon. Beginning with this edition of Poetry Planet, I'll be instigating a couple of changes to the content. The changes come out of the responses to a survey I set up about Poetry Planet. You're more than welcome to participate if you haven't already. Just follow the links in the show notes. The most important things I've gleaned from the survey are that you, the listeners, like to hear the poets read their own poetry. So I've given each of them the option of doing so. And today you'll hear that a couple of them took me up on it and that you'd like to hear more interpretation or background information on the poetry. I hope that by including what inspired the poet to write their poem, you will have a greater understanding for it. I will also let you know just how far back you have to rewind in order to listen to the poem a second time, something that I highly recommend. The moon appears differently every night, and yet there is a wonderful constancy about it. People from all over the world and from all walks of life gaze upon it and are touched by its reflected light. It gives comfort through this sameness to many people. Refreshment from Beyond the City's Grasp by Lynn C.A. Gardner Cool and frosty, like a glint of ice, or a long, windy, cradle night in the home of my childhood, like a breath of cool, mystically chilling air, a breath of delicious winter, or the desert's night beauty, a draft from a cool, wine-sweet stream, oh, like a still, unuttered sigh. High above and far away, sending a cold, darting, magical glance through the panes of my windows, Out of reach of the city's artificial glow shines the full moon, and on my floor, up along one wall, pure moonlight. Refreshment from Beyond the City's Grasp was first published in Bellowing Arc, Volume 24, Number 2, March-April 2008, and reprinted in Status Hat, Cities Issue, March 2011. 
Lynn's inspiration for this poem stems from experiences as a child. This is what she has to say. Moving from the countryside of the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York to the urban environment of Tidewater, Virginia, was traumatic for me as a child. But I always retained my love of nature and found comfort in sun in the trees, moonlight on my bed, or the occasional rare snowstorm, the beauties of home finding me despite the different environment. The moon itself has long been a potent source of inspiration for me, serving in some ways as my ultimate symbol of both fantasy and science fiction. Now go back approximately two minutes, or to the 3.06 marker, to listen again. A couple of months ago in the night sky, we saw Venus and Jupiter in very close proximity to the moon, and most recently, the transit of Venus across the sun. What an awe-inspiring sight. Did it take your breath away? Thinking of that tiny speck moving across the sun reminds me of how small we are and how vast is the cosmos, how seldomly these amazing phenomena occur. Leaps to the Moon by Sandra Lindo Above and beyond the rotting watermelon rind and banana peels in the mulch bin, Venus and Jupiter closely flank a brilliant crescent moon a configuration that won't be seen again for another sixty years. I will be mulch for moonbeams, then. So for now I stand coatless, transfixed by bannered purple-teal sky, while the breath of December fills me to my bones. Sandra says... Poetry for me works best if I combine two disparate lines of experience that come together in the moment. The title, Leaps to the Moon, comes from a pose I learned in Tai Chi. The poem follows the breath and integrates the physical with the spiritual. Tai Chi, gardening, mortality, all very essential. Sandra's book, Dancing with the Tao, Le Guin and Moral Development, a critical book that is now in the publication process. If all goes well, it will be published this year in the late summer or early fall in both electronic and print versions. She is one of few writers who research and discuss Le Guin's poetry. To get back to the beginning of the poem, go to the 536 marker. David Lundy is a poet and translator whose work has appeared in many journals. His work has been included in 40 anthologies, and he is the author of 11 books of poems and translations, the most recent being Breaking the Willow, 2008, and 300 Tang Poems, 2011, translations of classical Chinese poetry. David's poem may seem to many to be more like a science poem rather than a science fiction poem. I want to draw your attention to the narrative elements that come at the end of each stanza when David speculates on what the facts meant or mean to us human beings. This is what makes this poem a science fiction poem. Moonstruck by David Lundy 1. When an object the size of Mars caromed off the coalescing Earth, 
blasting a great chunk loose into space, the goop from the gouge itself, by its own gravity, began to round and rotate on its developing axis, as well as around its parent body, which was extraordinary luck for all potential creatures on Earth. 2. Earth now had a companion, which might have seemed of doubtful fortune if there had been anyone to observe its effects at the time. The new moon was ten times closer to its parent body than it is at present, which meant that its ferocious gravitational pull dragged tides a thousand times higher than ours, as much as four miles high, that roared ashore for an hour and a half, then out again for an equal time, scouring the surface of earth and churning land and sea together in a mucky brew, which in the end was a very good thing for all potential creatures on earth. 3. When those tides bulged out as the earth spun, they were about ten degrees ahead of the moon, which caused the moon to gradually accelerate, moving slowly into a higher orbit while earth lost energy of rotation and slowed down, so that its days, which were five or six hours long to begin with, grew incrementally longer, which they continued to do, and the same effect in reverse, slowed the moon's rotation to zero, so that it presented but a single cratered hemisphere, and waxed and waned in a regular pattern, which fascinated the evolving creatures on Earth, who, after several billion years of random biological experimentation, developed curiosity and moon worship, and a longing to go there, and soon, on our geological timescale, they did, which, of course, being moonstruck, only left them longing to go farther, and that may or may not be a good thing for these creatures on Earth still hoping to evolve. Moonstruck appeared in Starline October to December 2011. This is what David Lundy says about his poem. Moonstruck is a poem that I've wanted to write for years but never did until Marge Simon and Bruce Boston told me that they were looking for SF poems for an issue of the Pedestal magazine they were guest editing. I didn't get it done in time for that, but Marge took it for Starline. The poem is based on a lecture given by Dr. Neil Comins at the State University of New York at Fredonia, where I was teaching at the time. I taught there for 34 years. I was fascinated by the whole story, and particularly the idea that if this collision had not happened just as it did, there may have never been life on Earth. As my poem details, Everything had to happen just so in order to make it possible, and that a kind of catastrophic event could have made us possible. What are the odds? All the physical details are real. It's at 8.04 you'll find the beginning of the poem. Our next poem is by a new author, Nathan Boole. He recently discovered Starship Sofa and Poetry Planet, and this is a bit about himself. Nathan has been a fan of science fiction and fantasy since childhood and has recently been dipping his toes into writing in both genres. Though he hasn't been published yet, he's a big fan of the sofa and hopes he can catch up to the current episode before aliens suck out his brains. Nathan's short story, Black Bradley and the Mercenary Captain, is available for Kindle on Amazon. Post-Apocalypse Aging by Nathan Boole The man in the moon has laugh lines now, and a jungle beard grows on his chin. And though ancient earth is a tundra of ice, 
The man in the moon wears a grin. A bit about the poem. I wondered what the man in the moon would look like from Earth if we colonized and terraformed the moon, and I pictured a future in which all but the hardiest humans were forced to abandon the Earth and move to the moon and from there to the stars. Whether or not it's scientifically plausible, and whether or not the world eventually does end in some kind of apocalypse scenario, I see the moon as a sort of symbol of hope. So the moon is smiling down on the earth as it begins a new cycle of life, starting over from scratch while humanity watches from above. Our relationship to the moon is vast and varied, extensive and extraordinary among the celestial bodies. But do we understand it, the moon or our longing for it? It's easy enough to forget about it or ignore it, but at one time we were moved enough to actually visit the moon. It seems to us to be oh so long ago. And June and Croon by Jeffrey A. Landis. We sit down here, looking up at the moon, necks cricked back all uncomfortable, with our thoughts of poetry and romance and dancing silverware and silvery light. But the moon doesn't affect us, not really. Not even as much as it does clams, sleeping in their mud, dreaming mindless dreams, set to rhythm by a stone in the sky they'll never see, never even guess the existence of. And to us, it's just a light in the sky. Maybe we gaze at it for a minute or two, say, gosh, isn't it beautiful behind wispy clouds or shining on the lake or over the mountains, and then go on chattering inconsequentialities and never even think to look up at it again. But it's a place, the moon, a place big as all Africa, big as all the world's deserts together, and then some. Harsh and rugged and cold as the mountains of Antarctica. And as beautiful. A place with lonely footprints nearly forgotten, tiny in the midst of vast cratered plains, where we have left behind our forgotten dreams. No, footprints are never lonely. The loneliness is in us. And June and Kroon was in Asimov's, May 1991. Jeffrey has this to say about his poem. I wish I had an amusing story to tell about in June and Croon. I was sitting outside one evening, looking at the moon rising, and musing on all the significance that the moon has in poetry and myth and in our imaginations. I was thinking how easy it is to forget that the moon is not a beautiful light in the sky, but a world all of its own. There is a photo from the Apollo era, a single footprint with the rocky gray landscape stretching off into the distance. That, to me, encapsulates the distance and loneliness of the moon, the magnificent desolation, in the words of Buzz Aldrin. But, of course, loneliness is just us projecting our feelings onto the moon. Go on. Listen again. Two and a half minutes is all the rewinding it takes. The moon isn't only a destination for astronauts and science fiction writers. It holds a certain fascination for writers of the fantastic as well. Consider what might happen if fairies got it into their heads to throw a party on the moon. Mari Ness tells us what could happen. 
Moondance by Mari Ness When the fairies went dancing on the moon, they had to bring magic and air for the moon. Such a fuss, such a bother, such a casting of fine webs and rough magic, all for the moon. But they had seen mortals in fat silver suits bouncing and stumbling across the cold, harsh moon. They could not, but could not allow mere mortals to go where fairies could not, even the moon. And so fairy wines and candles, cookies and cakes, were gathered and frothed for a party on the moon. And air, how that slid here and there in their webs, protesting, shaking at the thought of the moon. Of course fairy air talks, it has to, it must. Such things happen when fairies dance on the moon. At last all was gathered in sapphire flasks, and the fairies webbed up for a dance on the moon. With a huff and a puff, three twists on a rose, and a twinkling they spun to fall upon the icy gray moon. Oh, the cold, the dust! They rushed with their brooms to polish and clean up that filthy old moon. Their hands, their parched wings, their twisted blue roses. Was it worth it to float on this airless moon? But then, silver and white, in a fairy trice, the fairies had swept all the dust from the moon. Below, mortals blinked and cried out in cold fear at the freakish brightness of this fairy-cleaned moon. They opened their flasks, shook out their bright gowns. They lifted fiddles and harps and drums on the moon. The air bounded about, the cakes danced on, and the fairy laughter sang out on the moon. And the awoken moon laughed, that merry old rock, and sang for more fairies to dance on the moon. Mari writes, I wrote Moon Dance because I wanted to play with the English language Chazal form. A Chazal is a form of Persian poetry. In its English form, it's supposed to consist of a series of five couplets linked together only by a repetition of a word or a phrase in each couplet. It ended up sliding into a narrative and thus lost the Chazal form, but I still liked the thought of fairies dancing on the moon and kept it. I did stick to the couplet and repetition, but that was about it. An actual chazal should not include any sort of narrative. Now, wouldn't you like to hear that again? Go back two and a half minutes. Okay, guys, when you consider impressing a girl, how grand do you think? You could consider harnessing the moon. I would have been impressed. Moon Pilot by David Kapaska Merkel Moon Pilot 1 He's piloted greater craft than this, star wanderer, but for her this wounded planetoid is best, passion expressed, on the dance floor will never miss. And this craft has a killer dance floor. It's volcanic. He dreams of her, her lips, her hips, a thousand ships, her face, He's washed up on her shore. This is her street and now her house. He rings the bell. His tie is straight, his hair in place. His heart can trace. Her as she comes with godlike grace. Moon Pilot 2 Wells, steers, Luna, earth flinches, moon nuzzles front door, swept off her feet by the craters, 
She dances the dark side until dawn neath airless cliffs. Moon Pilot 3 Luna comes calling. Wells rings the bell and her heart leaps. Endless dark side prom. Moon Pilot 4 Wells wakes. Moon Pilot was first published in the Memory of Persistence chapbook. David says, I don't remember the exact sequence of events. I wrote this poem about seven years ago, but one thread was the idea of H.G. Wells as an inventor rather than merely a writer, along the lines of the movie Time After Time. At the same time, I was thinking about reworking poems in different forms or at different lengths. I decided to try it with this one. I thought it worked well, and the four different versions went together, so I made them be a single four-part poem. The basic idea of the poem itself was of a young man, head over heels in love with a woman, who brings the moon to her door in an attempt to impress her enough so that she will go out with him. I ignored, for the most part, the physical impossibilities this would entail. It's just a love poem. To hear Moon Pilot again from the beginning, scrub back two and a half minutes. Our next poet, Gerald Warfield's short story, The Polly Islands, won second prize in the first quarter of the 2011 Writers of the Future contest. The same year, his humorous story, The Origin of Third Person in Paleolithic Epic Poetry, took first place in the nationally syndicated Grammar Girl short story contest. His poetry has appeared in numerous magazines, including New Myths, edited by Scott Barnes. Many aspects of life on Earth are influenced by the gravitational pull of the moon, Could the dance of the moon and the earth be microcosmic for a much greater macrocosmic dance? Listen to Gerald read his poem. A Greater Moon by Gerald Warfield In the end, a final breath. No sight or sound, I think, but the universe contained within a single ebb and flow. That breath totem of a greater tide joins its kin within a single cosmic sigh. For each life, one season, and from its farthest ebb, no return. No call of moon, nor sun, nor stars may rouse it singly from its last retreat. Yet upon the sea there are many tides, and on those tides many waves in turn that rise and fall and clamor to be heard and not to die. I am told of a universe that expands and of a last retreat from which there is no escape. But perhaps the breath of life once drawn does not exhaust itself, but joins again a greater tide summoned by a greater moon. The wave, once dashed upon the strand, does not rise and fall again, yet join it must the tide that brought it thus to end upon unyielding shores. The universe expands. The universe contracts. Who is to say it is not called by a greater moon that summons tides on endless shores, where endless waves exhaust themselves, though singly rise? No more. A Greater Moon was first published in NewMyths.com, issue 15, edited by Scott T. Barnes, and received a Reisling nomination. Gerald has a few words about his poem. 
Unlike science, poetry is unbounded and unquantifiable. For instance, I thought I was an atheist, and yet, when I wrote A Greater Moon, I found that I believed in its message. Acknowledging the possibility of a greater moon allows for transcendence beyond perception, beyond all reason. That is the power of poetry, not to be limited by what we think we know. You really do want to hear this one again. Go back two minutes and 20 seconds. In Poetry News, Locus Online's Roundtable blog began a series of articles, essays, and podcasts on speculative poetry in May. The series kicked off with a podcast discussion with Mike Allen and F.J. Bergman, Starline's new editor, and Let Us Go Then, You and I, An Introduction to Speculative Poetry, an essay by Locus Roundtable editor Karen Burnham, as well as a history of SF poetry and posts by Anne Schwader, Brian Thawora, Denise Dumars, and others. Check it out. Links are in the show notes, which can be found on my blog. A couple of special publications have come to my attention recently. Rose Lumberg, editor of Stone Telling Magazine of Speculative Poetry, released two anthologies at WISCON over Memorial Day weekend. They are The Moments of Change, an anthology of feminist speculative poetry, with entries by Ursula Le Guin, Theodora Goss, Amal El-Motar, Kat Valenti, Joe Walton, and many, many more. This is one that I'm really looking forward to. The other is Here We Cross, an anthology chapbook of queer and gender-fluid poetry, gleaned from the digital pages of Stone Telling. Entries by Mari Ness, Amal El-Motar, Lawrence Schimmel, Sonia Taff, Alexandra Seidel, and many more. Both are available on Amazon. Some excellent issues of online mags this month include the brand new Grand Science Fiction, The Pedestal Magazine with the SF Poetry edited by Marge Simon and Bruce Boston, Goblin Fruit edited by Amal El-Motar and Jessica P. Wick, The Centrifugal Eye, Eye to the Telescope, and my favorite from May, Ink Scrawl, with a companion review of each of the dwarf's length poems at Versification, written by Amal El-Motar. The 2012 Reisling Anthology is for sale. The contents represent the SFPA members' nominations for the Reisling Award. Voting privileges are extended only to the membership, similar to the Nebula Awards, but the anthology includes the best poetry of the year and makes for great reading. Purchase info can be found at sfpoetry.com. So there you have it. That's Poetry Planet and our mission to the moon. Join me next time for a look at animals and creatures in science fiction poetry. That's it. Show is a wrap. Thank you very much, honestly, for listening. You know what I mean? means a lot. Just even listening, it, I, I'm so appreciated. If you could, you know, please, you know, get yourself the, the, the originals. That's what we call them, the originals, Starship Sofas. And, you know, get that app. Write a, a little chew, a review in iTunes. And I'm just actually to see if it, you know, everyone says that. But if it, if it does push up the kind of rankings, that would be fantastic. That would mean so much to us. You know, it, it just means, you know, because now so many people have got these devices. It's quite scary. Do you know what I mean? And if we can kind of get Starships over up a little kind of bit as well, you know, keep that kind of download figure. It would be truly spectacular. You know what I mean? So there you go. That's it. That's it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week.
just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two.